Welcome to Old Boys Club. A podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I am a Melbourne-based journalist and I used to work very briefly in politics. My name is Matilda Bosley. I'm also a Melbourne-based journalist and my favourite colour is light green. <laughs> you're running out of career facts so you're just moving to I'm other I'm sorry, facts. I've had only like four jobs. I don't know what you want me to do. Two, three of them are journalism. The other one was being a bad nanny. We're all out. We know. <laughs> I like the uh, colour green. I didn't know that about you. Oh, really? Yeah. Not very observant. Okay. <laughs> so we don't have our usual weekly episode today. Do not panic. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry. We actually think that you're going to enjoy this episode even more. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's very good. Look, um, after we dropped our 10th episode last week, uh, we decided we were going to take just a little break from recording just for one week. It's something that we might do every so often uh, just to regroup and not totally die of exhaustion. Not too often. Yeah, but but occasionally it's important to take breaks. Yeah, and we wanna we wanna practice what we preach there. We love <laughs> self care. <laughs> But instead today, we have another installment of our monthly-ish series, Question Time. Monthly-ish, we make absolutely no promises <laughs> on the rollout schedule. Um, Question Time is a series where we interview an interesting person who's somehow involved in the world of politics. And unlike real Question Time, we actually get some answers. <laughs> True. And today, we are chatting with Kate Atlas, the former Federal Minister for Youth, Women, Sports, Childcare, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, she served as a Labor MP in the Federal Parliament for nearly 15 years and has a lot of interesting things to say about it. Yeah, a a real underachiever. (laughs) Kate was elected as the member for Adelaide in 2004, just a couple of weeks after her 27th birthday. And then in 2007, she became the youngest person ever at the time to become an Australian government minister. And this was during the Rudd and Gillard governments. The Rudd and then Gillard and then Rudd. That that little... (laughs) Remember when Labor was in government? That feels like a hot second ago. It, it does. That was a flash in the pan, baby. Kevin 07. <laughs> um, that Kate stayed in Parliament and only retired as a politician in 2019. Now, since leaving Parliament, Kate has written a book called Sex, Lies and Question Time, which is the reason that we're speaking to her today. So this is a book that dives into the toxic, blokey culture in Canberra and really looks at it through the eyes of women that work there. In this interview, we talked to Kate about how the death of her father when she was a teenager shaped her political life what it's like juggling life as a mother and a politician, and we try to drill down into what her own party, the Labor Party, is doing to tackle sexism in its own ranks. Now, this interview isn't sponsored or paid for in any way, shape or form. However, Kate's publishers were kind enough to send us a couple of extra copies of Sex, Lies and Question Time that we really want to give away to our listeners. If this interview piques your fancy and you are wanting to read the book. So if you'd like to win a copy of Kate's book for you and a friend, head to our Instagram at Old Boys Club Pod because we are going to do our first ever giveaway. How exciting. <laughs> what an exciting time. Speaking of exciting, though, we're super excited to bring you this chat. So here it is. Question time with Kate Ellis. Enjoy. Kate Ellis, how is it going? It is good, thank you. It's wonderful <laughs> to be with you. Would you maybe um, introduce yourself for our audience who may not totally be across your your history? Very and... impressive political history. <laughs> yeah. What's what's your position in this world? I am the now former member for Adelaide. I spent 15 years in the federal parliament 
from 2004 to 2019. And that's basically like a lifetime because it's like dog years, uh, parliament years. And I decided not to run at the last election. And instead, I have spent some of my time writing a book about some of my experiences um, as particularly as a woman in the federal parliament, but also I interviewed women from across the political spectrum. So spoke to 16 different women about their experiences and kind of concluded what most of Australia has already noticed in the last few months. And that is that the culture is not an ideal place for women and that I think we should try and do better and be better. So that was me and my book, Sex, Lies and Question Time, available now. (laughs) (laughs) Did that end up just being sort of like unfortunately great timing that the book came out right as the whole uh, of politics? Parliament's Me Too movement. uh, Collapsed in upon itself when it came to the treatment of women? Yeah, it was really interesting timing because when I wrote the book last year, I kind of thought it would be quite controversial to suggest that the culture in Parliament was outdated and disrespectful to women. And in just the weeks leading up to the book being released, all of Australia realised that. And I felt like I'd almost become irrelevant before the book even came out because, of course, we heard Brittany Higgins so, you know, bravely stand up with her allegations of being raped in the ministerial wing of Parliament House. Then we saw accusations made against Christian Porter, the then Attorney General. And then we saw some really horrible stuff about what staff had been getting up to in the building. So in some ways, I felt like my book's pretty gentle and is talking about, I guess, the experiences of some of the most powerful women in that building, um, those elected, those most senior women. And so, you know, people say it was good timing, the book coming out, but it was also you know, it was it was terrible that my book wasn't focused on crimes of sexual assault, of rape, of what was happening to the most vulnerable people in the building. So I, I guess I it was a bit of a double-edged sword. Absolutely. We're going to dive into your book very soon and, and we've both read it and really enjoyed it. Before we dive into the book, for those who are listening to our podcast, we have a lot of people who, you know, are coming to politics for the first time, who the reason I think like our podcast is because we we take that extra step of, of going behind the scenes and explaining how things work. Could you start by just telling our audience, as our first guest who was a former politician, what does a week in politics look like for a politician? I think there's a misconception that politicians are in Canberra 24-7, they live there all the time, but it's not actually the case. And you talk actually in your book about some of the really meaningful work that occurs outside of Canberra. Yeah. Could you could you give us a brief background, a brief behind the scenes look? Basically, what, what's, what's the job, what's honestly? Job? What was your job? <laughs> well, I can try. I, I spent a long time trying to summarise this to explain to like my mum or my family what it is that we do. But basically, so Parliament sits in Canberra for about 20 weeks of the year. So on those times, we're obviously all in Canberra in Parliament House doing long days, yelling at each other, mainly across the chamber. But the rest of the time, what does it look like? Well, it's different every day, you know, visiting schools, community groups, meeting with um, local residents who might have issues they need help with. Um, So there's a whole lot of constituent work just kind of behind the scenes, helping out with Centrelink cases or visa applications. And there is more 
um, cups of tea and scones than any of your listeners could ever possibly imagine that, you know, every day there would be invites to multiple local community events. And I always felt incredibly guilty because no matter how hard you try, you actually can't make it to all of them. But I guess one example of that is when my now husband and I hadn't been together for that long. He'd decided to cook this delicious meal for me one Saturday night and he was so proudly telling me about all the work he'd done and I just looked at him and I said, didn't I tell you it's Somalian Independence Day today? (laughs) (laughs) And so one of the really great things about being a Member of Parliament is you see parts of the local community that you never knew existed. You know, you get invited behind the doors of all these different things um, to see what's really going on. And it means it's it's a 24-7 job, like it is full on, but it's amazing. And, you know, it was something that I feel really privileged that I got to do for so long. What What is a day in Parliament like? I know you talk in the book a bit about, you know, when the bells start ringing and you have to rush into the chamber. Walk us through you know, when you're in Canberra, what does that actually look like? So Parliament House, for anyone that hasn't been to Canberra and visited. Matilda, Matilda hasn't been. Hey, okay. <laughs> I have many you times. You've had quite a long time in lockdown. Um, <laughs> it's not her fault. I mean, She's currently so it would be illegal for me to go, so. <laughs> I will paint you a picture. Okay, thank you so much. So Parliament House is like this amazing building in terms of we obviously have the Houses of Parliament But I think there's like three or four different restaurants or cafes. There's a gym, there's squash courts, there's a hairdresser, there's a swimming pool. A rather notorious prayer room. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Um, But it, it, you know, libraries, it, it is this remarkable building. And one of the reasons for that is that when Parliament's sitting, like you'd normally get into the office 7, 7.30 in the morning, try and get across all the issues of the day. Um, you know, do your your morning radio or media spots and Parliament will start at 9 or 9.30 and, you know, back in the old days you used to sit till 10.30 at night regularly um, so you actually can't leave the building during the day. So it's great to have all of those facilities and one including a childcare centre which has just changed the whole place but it means that you spend this entire day not breathing fresh air, not going outside, not leaving the building um, because you're in committee meetings or meeting with um, lobby groups who have come to Canberra to to push their case or running in and out of the chamber. And it's really just question time, so that kind of hour a day when all members of parliament are in the chamber at the same time and the media are all there and that's normally the focus, but it's actually a tiny part of the day. There's all sorts of other things going on in the building at the same time. I remember it all too fondly. No, actually not fondly at all. (laughs) Um, I... I want to get into. You shouldn't say things like that because I want to interview you oh, now. I'm like, you can. I mean, we can talk. So about that can be it. written here. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I just remember the very early starts and the very late yeah. nights and the yeah. the like. It was just it's very intense. And when mm. the bells ring, the bells just ring constantly. Um, you talk mm. about that in your book that when the bells start ringing, you've got to get into the chamber. You've got four minutes. If you're breastfeeding a baby, it's a nightmare. Like. I yes, I relate to not the breastfeeding part, but the the nightmare of the bells always ringing. <laughs> it did make me wonder how much of extremely important policy has changed because someone was like taking a poo at the wrong time. <laughs> like, I had to be... <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot of a lot of stressed people in Parliament House. Yeah. Um, so, turning to you, Kate, something that 
really struck me that the moments that struck me the most in your book were when you were talking about your younger years and you, you don't talk about them too frequently, but I, it left me curious as to whether there was a moment growing up when you first realized you were politically engaged. Like, was there a moment you were like, oh yeah, I like, I, I care about what's happening in parliament or I, I care about this political issue? Yeah, it was probably pretty late. Um, so I grew up in this house where I remember being really young and it being election day and asking my mum who she was voting for. And I think she actually told me off. She said, Kate, you don't, <laughs> you don't ask that. You don't ask people about politics or religion. So we didn't actually grow up in a house where we talked about party politics really ever at all. But um, having said that, not to get too deep too early, but my dad actually died when I was a teenager. And a few years later when I was at university and I started getting involved in politics because it was the time that there were massive cuts to university funding. And I knew that, you know, there's a whole lot of people that would just never be able to make the decision to get a university education if they knew how much debt they were going to take on. And so I got quite involved in in those kind of education campaigns. And from that point, it opened my eyes up to a whole lot of other issues, which, you know, I guess then I became politicised. I realised that there are a whole lot of other issues that I had some pretty strong opinions on. And so when I first got involved, I remember a friend of my dad's saying, oh, my God, you're your father's daughter, aren't you? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, your dad was a massive Labor man. And I said, I never knew that. Like, I never once, we never once had that conversation. But I think it just shows, you know, people think that they're not political, but you're picking up values all the time anyway, even if you don't recognise that they might correlate with one party or another. I was probably political but not party political for a long time. I was a real pain in the butt in high school. I was pretty self-righteous. <laughs> I just remember standing up and making these speeches on, you know, ending racism or stopping cruelty to animals mm. or whenever it was like speech time, you could almost see the class groan going, what's Kate going to lecture us about today? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I guess I probably always was a bit. Yeah, you talk about in the book um, about your – I'm giving too much of the book away. I'm so sorry. But there's like a one of the, the the tiny paragraphs that stood out to me was you talking about your 10-year reunion at your school and your teacher yes. uh, remarking at how you gave like this impassioned speech for an assignment and that he was not surprised at all you'd gone into politics. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting that you talk about your dad because you and I are very similar in this regard, Kate, because I lost my mum – really suddenly to cancer when I was 19. And so I relate to that a lot. Um, and in particular, uh, I also had a very political mum, maybe more overtly political it sounds. Um, but I, I think that that moment had a huge impact on my life. And I'm, I personally am curious, are there any other ways that that loss shaped you uh, heading into political life or, or as a politician? I think it shaped me in a really huge way. I think just the age that I was, um, it was a turning point in my life. And, you know, I kind of allude in the book that I wasn't a model student. I was more likely smoking behind the <laughs> behind the shed or um, wagging school and going off and doing, <laughs> well, I won't disclose what. But, um, but so, so my dad died two weeks before I started year 12 and I remember sitting at his funeral and hearing all these people say these amazing things and you just kind of get that slap in the face where you realise one day it's going to be your funeral and what are people going to say about you? Are they going to say, you know, you're a lazy person who never really did anything or that you decided to 
grab life and try and live it to its fullest. And so that was a that was a really important turning point for me. But I think it also shaped me in terms of I think whether you're conscious of it or not, you cling on to the things that you had in common with your lost parent. So for me, it was probably politics, um, but also like football. We were really big into football and I have stayed that way. You know, I, I kind of cling on to the the football teams that Dad and I used to go and used to go and see. And probably the other way it shaped me is the decision to leave. Uh, I think when you've had a parent who, in in my dad's case, he was 45 and he died really suddenly. And so it makes you realise that you've got to make choices. You don't know how much time you've got. And so my decision to leave, I'm sure, was shaped in part by the fact that I know firsthand that you don't necessarily get to spend a lot of time with your family. And once I had kids, I just knew that I didn't want to be away from them for, for more time than I was with them. And um, so that that probably comes back to dad as well. So yeah, he's got a bit to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't they? So in your book, Sex, Lies and Question Time, you explore a lot of the different barriers that women politicians face. Um, if people are keen for more info, can I suggest the book Sex, yeah, Lies and Question Time? Get the book. <laughs> um, but I mean, just on a, you know, in the broad terms, what are the things, you know, when as a woman you step foot in parliament for the first time, what are the things that are used as weapons against women that just aren't against male politicians? What are the main, you know, what are the main obstacles? So of, of all of the women that I spoke to, everyone had an example of ways that they'd been treated differently or disrespected because they were women, but they were quite different. So um, for many, it was, you know, we've seen a bit of this in the last few years. Um, women are really subjected to sexual rumours, gossip, um, slurs against them and their credibility in a way that I've never seen used against male um, politicians, regardless of what they were actually getting up to. So I think, you know, making up stories about you being busted having sex in the prayer room of Parliament House or sleeping with a com car driver or having these sordid love triangles where you're all sleeping with each other in your office, that's a weapon that's used against women to attack your credibility, to make it look like you're not serious, you're not focused on the job. And that's something that, you know, a lot of women had stories and examples to give. Even standing up in question time and having men on the other side yell out the names of men that you were alleged to have slept with as if that is relevant in a debate about the future of the nation. Um, and that that really happens. Like that, that yeah. detail really shocked me. Yeah, it actually shocked me doing the interview. So one of the other things is that everyone's experiences were different. I was really quite shocked by some of the examples that were given. But for other women, it was different things. It was, you know, a focus on their appearance, how attractive they were or non-attractive, how much effort they put into their um, their outfits, they put too much effort in, then they're frivolous, they don't put enough in, they're lazy and they don't take care of themselves. There are these value judgments that are given to women's physical appearances in a way that I don't think that happens to men at all. And the other thing is just being a Member of Parliament, I'm not really selling this. Uh, we'll talk about some good things. <laughs> yes, we will. We will get to some good stuff. <laughs> um, I think the other thing is that, you know, if you're a Member of Parliament, then you expect that there are going to be lots of people who disagree with you and who have very different views. 
but the feedback that women get is much more violent and much more sexualized in the kind of abuse on social media or through emails or in public debate than that which men are receiving. And it's been interesting since the book's been out how many of my male former colleagues have said that they just actually had no idea that the experience was so different because, you know, they just hadn't seen it, hadn't experienced it. But women um, just dealing with threats, violence, um, you know, rape threats, all sorts of um, things that men don't have to deal with and it adds to the pressure of the job. So there's there's no doubt, you know, there's a whole lot of different ways that women are treated differently and, you know, I think that people... I think I probably just saw that as that's the way that the world works. That's just how it happens. And it wasn't until I got out that I got a bit of perspective and I thought that's not how modern Australia works. That is not acceptable for the place that's meant to be setting examples for the rest of the community. And, you know, it's got to change. Who are the drivers of that within Parliament House? I mean, like, if we're saying this is the problem, who are the people that needs to change, who need to change their behaviour? Well, I think that we need to have a bit of a stricter code on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and what's off limits and what's not off limits. And that has to be kind of a consensus across the parliament. Um, But I also think the media's got a role to play in it, that, you know, it's often journalists who are being um, leaked this kind of information or these lies in order to discredit um, a rival they have a call to make. Do you pass on that gossip? Do you let it shape your opinion? Or do you actually go to the person that's being gossiped about and see if it's real? And if not, maybe tell the person that that's affecting their credibility. So I think the media needs to change. I think the the tone of parliamentary debate and the standards of what's acceptable need to change. And, you know, I think the community actually need to be more aware of it and jump up and down and make sure there's consequences when they do see examples of it. But that's just me getting on my high horse again. <laughs> I think that's something that, that we talk less about when we talk about fixing parliamentary culture is the role that women can also play in this because, unfortunately, women can also be complicit in these systems that have been set up to push other women down. Can you talk about whether that's something that you also observed in, in politics or, or are there ways that, that women need to change their behaviour in parliament to support other women more? Yeah, so I've decided that, you know, people say that you're kind of radical at university and then you get more conservative <laughs> as you get older. I'm actually going the other way. So um, I've decided. We love since, that. We love that. Since the book's come out, I've decided it's not just the treatment of women in Parliament that needs to change, it's the whole tone, the whole rules of engagement. I think our politics is broken and it turns people off. So one of the problems is actually the hardest chapter of the book um, that I found to write was about women's relationships with other women. Mm. I think a lot of people outside politics go, well, if it's so hard on all the women and you're all experiencing it, why don't you all just get together and kind of form a coalition to make it stop? Um, But you're quite right that the truth is that women are actually sent into battle with women on the other side. If there's a female minister who's in trouble, it will normally be a woman um, from the other side who's sent in to ask the hard questions or to make the allegations so that men don't look like they're bullying this woman. Mm. And I think that just needs to stop. I think women just need to stop doing the dirty work of men. And I'm not saying that you can't ask hard questions of people on the other side, but 
I think we've all got to take responsibility for the sort of tone that we have. And just to give an example, you know, we've had questions of women, of senior women, of our first female prime minister about her personal relationship from 20 years ago being asked in question time. And it would be another woman who was sent to do that job. So I I actually think that having watched question time for the first time since I left a couple of weeks ago, last week, I think it was, it really disgusted me. I just thought it's not doing any favours to the profession and it's not doing any favours for people's understanding of the work that members of parliament do. And I think they need to look at serious reform and quite radical reform, change politics more broadly. One thing you talked about in the book was sort of the decisions you're having to make around how chummy you would be with women on the other side of the aisle, especially you sort of mentioned that there were women in the Liberal Party that you felt were making decisions that were actually bad for other women. You know, if we're we're thinking about you spoke to Pauline Hanson for this book, but if you're thinking about, you know, people like Pauline Hanson or maybe Amanda Stoker, who's not that pro-choice, you know, things like that, is there value in sort of being like, no, I'm going to sit down and work with these women? Or is it or do you think that, you know, the policy side of things needs to come first? How do you make those choices about who who it's actually worth your time trying to form this sisterhood with, this idea yeah. of sisterhood? Yeah, I think that it, it might be unpopular to say it, but I, I think the truth is that there are, um, I would have much more in similarities with men who share my political views than with women on the opposing side. And we're not there to make friends. Like, it's actually high stakes. You're there battling over what the future of Australia will look like. So um, I, I don't think it's realistic that women, just because, you know, we've all had some hard days, are going to lay down our guns and cuddle each other. Or mm-hmm. as, as Tanya Plibersek put it in the book, what are we going to do, braid each other's hair and talk about boys? <laughs> at the same time, you know, at the same time, if they're women who... I think are putting other women's lives at risk through um, family law changes or defunding women's shelters or um, not investing in vulnerable children, then they're actually bigger issues for me personally, you know, the future of our education system versus a, a woman feeling like she had a hard day in the parliament. Kate, I want to take this, this interview down a slightly different route for a second. And that is that you and I have another big thing in common, which was that. Oh no, no, the first one was so bad. Um, We have another big thing in common, which was that when I was at university, my first year of uni, I joined Young Labor and I joined the Labor Party because my, and I've never admitted this publicly. Mm -hmm. So this is like my, this is hot hot tea tea on, on this podcast. Um, and the reason for that was because I was raised in like a very pro-labor household. Um, my mom had worked for the, my mom had run for the Labor Party in Queensland. Like it was, I, I was raised with these ideas, and so I wanted to become politically involved in uni. But I ended up not only leaving the youth, like lab, young Labor, but also like the Labor Party altogether very quickly because of the sexism that I witnessed in Young Labor and. This is a conversation I don't think we have when we talk about how we're going to fix the problem of sexism in politics. We don't talk about how the youth divisions across all political parties, there are, I know many women who have left them, um, no matter what their political preference is, because of misogyny or sexism or discrimination. And I would love to hear from you as someone who, you know, was a minister within the party and in parliament, how do we 
fix this issue from the beginning? Like how do we, how do, how does the Labor Party, because that's who you belong to, how do they tackle, how should they be tackling this kind of sexist behaviour that we see emerging from the very beginning when young people are getting involved. And a, and a widespread problem as well. I've spoken to many people yeah. from many different young Labor factions who have had similar experiences. And parties in general, yeah. I, I think there's a couple of things. I think, one, we need to recognise, like, I just culture is everything. The culture of your organisation um, is so important that you've got to have a zero-tolerance approach and you've got to have leadership actually setting the way. Um so I'm really saddened that you had that experience and that other people have had those experiences because I think it's probably not uncommon and not just in politics but across the board that we have these, you know, very confident young men out to take over the world and women trying to create some space um, just to be heard. And I think it's changing a bit. Like one of the things I think is really important is also that the party from the top adopts really strong policies on gender equality that whether you're a young bloke joining up to young labor you know that's what your party stands for or any other party um and i think that culture changes um when that's prioritized and when that's spoken about from the top down as well um if it's any consolation i had a really nice experience a few weeks ago where here in adelaide we did a um a labor women launch of the book and it was the first time that there'd been a Labor Women event that they said men are welcome to come and didn't really know what the turnout was going to be. But there was this big group of young Labor boys, young men, who came along and was really interesting and they stayed around and were having a conversation afterwards asking those questions like how do we make sure that we change it coming through and it gave me such hope because one of the things that um, shits me to be honest is that we keep talking about how women are going to fix these problems we didn't create these problems we didn't set this culture and we also really need good men to stand up and recognize it's a problem and that it needs to change and that's important from you know youth levels all the way through to the most senior levels of the party when we are talking about the issues that women face in politics, I mean, where does most of this come from? Is this coming from sort of across the aisle or is it from within parties themselves? What's the what's the biggest piece of the pie that we need to solve? Um, I think that it comes from the culture within parties. I was there long enough to see a change in the culture of my party as we saw a massive increase in the number of women elected. Like all of a sudden you weren't kind of on your own battling to create some space, you turn around and there's just this army of women that were there with you and it changes the culture and makes it better. Um, but I, I come back to, I, I think that the way that our politics is structured, you know, it's about who wins question time for the day and how do you win question time? You humiliate someone on the other side and if you can do it in a witty way or in a really cutting way that causes them long-term damage, then that's how you win at daily politics and that's how you get rewarded by the media. Um, you get the the one grab of question time that's on the TV news that night. That's a really big problem. Like, And that's a, that's a culture and a, a set of rules that was really, is really aggressive, um, was set up by men because they were the only people making the rules at the time. And I just don't think works for anyone, but it sets the tone of the place. So um, I think the culture within parties is really important, 
but the overall tone is quite toxic when it comes to how you win um, in politics. It just seems to me that the sport of politics has taken over from the battle of policy ideas and we need to find a way to rebalance that. Yeah, that's been, I mean, there's been a topic that's come up a lot recently about the reforms needed for question time. What what are your views on that in terms of, you know, if we can change one thing about this sort of institution that we've got, what, what needs what needs to change? Um, oh, I think rip up the rules and start again. Like it just doesn't serve anyone any benefit when you have, you know, it, it's just set up so you can try and humiliate the opposition in any way. I mean, it's interesting. The rest of the world doesn't do it like that. Um, it, it it can be different. You know, you can look at the UK and say, well, they allocate ministers, different ministers, different days um, to answer policy questions on their portfolio um, rather than just trying to jump on board whatever the issue of the day is. You know, th- there's ways you could make changes to question time and try and stamp out some of the rubbish and actually bring it back to what it's meant to be about. Um, Kate, we'll fast forward to 2020. You wrote this book and published it this year. And I guess because of the publication schedule, it doesn't quite, and I can hear some toddlers in the background. So we've got to speed through these questions. Um, <laughs> um, it doesn't touch explicitly about on allegations from Brittany Higgins and the allegations against Christian Porter, which he denies. But how do you think the government has handled this this parliamentary Me Too movement that has come out um, and what should they be doing to uh, make this a – I think a lot of women have watched this and been like, oh, my God, I don't want to work in this place. How, mm. So what should the government be doing to, one, address the situation at hand and help more women feel comfortable with politics as a workplace? I, I think that one of the issues is I I really don't think the government understood where all the anger, where all the hurt was coming from from Australian women. I, I think there's a lot of people who, at least in the beginning, thought that this was some women's activists who were jumping on something to complain about a conservative government for, whereas my view is that, you know, if you have a look at the statistics on sexual assault um, as an example in Australia, So they say one in five women over the age of 15. When you actually scratch down a bit deeper into what that means, it means there are over one million women in Australia today who have been sexually assaulted. And very few of them have reported. Many of them have never even disclosed previously. So I think what happened was I think a lot of women thought that this is something that happens but that government try try to make it better and the judicial system tries to make it better. And this year what happened was they saw, hang on a second, and Brittany Higgins alleges that she was raped um, just metres from the Prime Minister's office and it was really terribly handled and it was, you know, appalling um, responses. She was left to feel like she had to choose between um, pursuing justice or keeping her job. And I think that what happened was I think women across Australia felt like if they don't care what happens in their own ministerial wing, why do they care what happened to me in my friend's lounge room or in the back of a car or down the street or where wherever it is? So I think the government viewed it as a political issue and didn't understand that this was actually about a human issue that, you know, hundreds of thousands of women have been dealing with themselves. And you know, it's kind of this combination of Grace Tame coming out, telling people to speak their truth um, and telling her story so bravely 
meant that, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. I've had women that I've known and been close to for decades who have disclosed to me their own trauma for the first time in the last few months. Um, after Grace Tame came out, after Brittany Higgins so courageously stood up in front of the place where she alleges she was raped and told her story to tens of thousands of people. Um, so I, I think that the government just didn't get it and they kind of thought, oh, the women are upset, what will we do? And then said, oh, we'll have a women-friendly budget and we'll put some more money into childcare. I, I think what they actually have to do is stand up and say, we understand how many of you are hurting. We understand how much you've suffered and we care and we care so much we want to do something about it. I, I for the life of me, cannot work out how we can have a national cabinet to talk about vaccine rollouts or to talk about a number of other things, but we can have women consistently killed um, in domestic violence and family violence cases each and every week. And no one's gone, hang on a second, maybe we should all get together and actually get serious about how we're going to stop this, how we're going to change this culture of violence. So um, I think if they want to fix it, they've got to first understand it and they've got to care enough to do something about it, not just try and come up with a political solution. One thing that, um, I mean, we spoke to Saxon Mullins when we were talking yeah, about yeah. sort of women coming up and, and speaking, and one thing that she mentioned to us as well was that still we have more women coming up and speaking out, but it still is a very specific subset of women, which is white women who end up having this voice. And, you know, you were sort of saying that you have spoken to these 16 different female politicians as part of this book, but it also strikes me that there's most of those women are white women just by virtue of that's who's allowed in the room of parliament to begin with. What what do we need to do when we're thinking about promoting not just women but women of colour when it comes to the Australian parliament? Well, I, I just think that ultimately the Australian parliament should look like the Australian community and it's got a long way to go. Um, so even though it's getting better in terms of gender, um, in terms of diversity, it is it is appalling and it doesn't seem to be um, getting better anytime soon. Like I, I, I actually can't believe that I was in the parliament when the first Aboriginal woman was elected to the House of Representatives and indeed the Senate. Like this is now, recently, it's just happening. And I think that, you know, if you have a look at um, people from different walks of life, people with disability, um, should be in our parliaments, should be represented um, people with a whole lot of different responsibilities. So some of that means changing the way parliament works. Um, at the moment, not everyone um, can go and be a federal member of parliament. If you're a single parent, it's really, really hard um, for you to find a way that you can do that. If you are living with serious disability, if you have high needs of the health system, um, if you have caring responsibilities, um, then it's really hard to make that choice. So we need to find a way that we can modernise the, the parliament as a workplace and we need to prioritise you know, parties not just looking at male, female, but truly looking at diversity more broadly um, and try and see that the community is better reflected there. It's a long, 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 long way to go. Kate? Finally, <laughs> last question. Um, the one that you hinted at earlier, which is that like, you know, we need to be getting more women into politics. We don't want us to scare people off. And something that we running this podcast, the question I think we have consistently got the most of is from young people, especially young women saying, I finally get politics. 
Now, how do I get involved in it? So one, how can people get involved in politics? It's a two-parter question. I'm squeezing them in. But two, what can the rest of us be doing to make politics a safer place and encourage more women to get involved in it? Well, I think to those women, that makes my heart sing. And Us that's too. What I want <laughs> to be saying. And, you know, it's pretty easy to get involved. People are begging um, for assistance. So, you know, work out what you believe in, what issues are important to you if you see a, a political party that lines up with your own beliefs and just make contact and say, I want to get involved. And normally you'll find that people will absolutely jump on you because they're desperate for um, for more people to get involved. And, you know, I think it's also about just backing yourself and recognising that you've got a voice that deserves to be heard and reminding yourself of that is really important. In terms of what the rest of the community can do, I think we've just got to get much better at calling out bad behaviour and and demanding that it be addressed. Um, You know, I, I think the fact that, so we had the Queensland MP, Andrew Lamming, who, you know, admitted to filming up the skirt of a young woman while she was at work who um, the Liberal Party have said is not fit to run at the next election, yet he continues to sit in the parliament, sit in the government um, party room to hold key positions on committees and we're all just expected to go, oh, that's okay. I think the community can do more in calling out bad behaviour and making sure demanding change when a whole lot of things happen and making sure that when women are treated badly, it's not just that woman who has to stand up and call it out, that there'll be an army of other people that will do it too. I think that's really important. Mm, I think we were both struck as members of the media in what you were sort of talking about the book about how the media does have a role to play as well in establishing what's behaviour that just is unremarkable and what's behaviour that's, you know, going to make the front pages and, mm. you know, what what the line in the sand is. So it was that was, I th- found, a really interesting sort of discussion in the book as well when you were discussing especially about the Gillard years. Mm. But thank you so much for joining oh, us. Kate, thank been- you so much. I have I just want to talk to you all day about politics. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but thank you for indulging us. And um, everyone go read Kate's book, Sex, Lies and Question Time. And we'll be doing a giveaway. On our, on our Instagram. Oh, so if you're listening to this podcast right now, go check our Instagram. We're doing a giveaway of um, a book for you and a friend. Or just like buy it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure as Kate would prefer. But thank you so much for coming on and uh, giving us your time. We really appreciate it. It's been so wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Justine, I feel like I know more about Parliament House now. Do you? No, you were there. I feel triggered. (laughs) It just reminded me of my times. (laughs) The bells are ringing. You're just trying to poop it out. Yeah, no, no, that that was that was the worst, the worst memories coming back. Just those those bells, they chime in my sleep, they wake me up. I don't, oh, I don't no. all the time. I, I need to stop reading Game of Thrones because there's some bells chiming for that as well. <laughs> Shame, but it's a different vibe, isn't it? There's more democracy in this one. <laughs> Arguably. Arguably. About the same amount of sexism, but well, slightly, oh, slightly, oh. Um, slightly more democracy. Mm. Anyway, that is our episode with Kate Ellis having a good old chat. Um, next person we're interviewing, Donald Trump. <laughs> I was just trying to think of another politician. But... <laughs> another former politician. Yeah. He's probably, re- he'll write another book about it. I'm sure. We'll, I... But we'll only ask him about Australian politics. <laughs> 
just picturing what this interview with Donald Trump would consist of. Remember all those stories about like Donald Trump negging Scott Morrison on the phone, like keeping him waiting for ages and stuff I'm like so, that? We, this can't go into the this actually can't go into the episode, but all I could think about was like we talked to Kate Ells about having a poo. We could talk to Donald Trump about having a piss on people. <laughs> <laughs> Kate's book, Sex, Lies, and Question Time, head over to our Instagram at Old Boys Club Pod. Pod. Jerk yourself and a friend, make sure they're both following you. It'll be a great time. Oh, oh if, you t- if you put the poo emoji in the comments, oh my God. you get an extra entry. <laughs> um, we acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. We'd also like to acknowledge the country that you're joining us from and pay our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, our theme music is by the incredible Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. Mixing and editing also by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Handley. And this is Old Boys Club. Club. Actually, talking about old boys this time. Hey guys, we're just coming back to you to say um, the rumours about Donald Trump pissing on people, totally unsubstantiated, absolutely no proof and that we, we know of. And we here at Old Boys Club are not trying to make any um, suggestions that those rumours are true, nor that uh, Donald Trump is definitely coming on this podcast. Uh, he won't now. He's really <laughs> blown it. We'd like to say that we are not implying that him pissing on people was true. We're implying that the idea of it is fucking funny. That's all we're saying. Thank you.